You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If there's an award, she's won it. If she hasn't, she's been nominated, and she certainly deserves them all. Thank you for joining us, it's Michelle. It's so good to be here. What a great crowd. What a lovely space, also. Michelle, we just want to hear your voice reading, <laughs> <laughs> reading from the book. And I was thinking of the first two paragraphs of Chapter 4. OK, tell me the page to help me get there quickly. Uh, oh, 36. 40, yeah. Uh, it's funny that you talk about my voice because I, I have young children. Can you hear me all right? No. All right, let me see if we can, can you hear me better now? Yes. I, I have two young children, they're 10 and 11, and people often talk about my radio voice. And my children are always saying to me, Mommy, can we have the radio voice? <laughs> <laughs> like, clean your room and you get the radio voice. So. I will begin. This is chapter four, it's called The Garden. Gradually, all but one of our neighbors' homes were purchased by or rented to other black families. The whites bolted for the suburbs or other all-white enclaves in the Twin Cities. Many suffered significant losses in their rush to sell. Those who could find no buyer rented their homes, having gotten used to the idea of being landlords to black tenants. That's how integration came to the 4800 block of Oakland Avenue. Despite a chilly reception at first, our family developed deep and meaningful friendships with the white families farther down the block who decided to stay, and with others who would later move to our little rainbow community. Perhaps because they started this real estate revolt, my parents made sure that the white families who didn't move would never have legitimate complaints about their black neighbors. The Norris family led by example. Not only was the snow always shoveled, cars were sparkling clean, and children were well-mannered and well-dressed. You never know who's watching, Mom would say, so even if we were playing with dolls in the basement or heading out to weed the garden, we always looked put together, hair pressed, clothes ironed, shoes spit-polished, mud wiped instantly from our tennis shoes. We didn't just emulate the all-American white families in the Coca-Cola commercials, we tried to top them. If you had run into Belvin and Betty Norris during one of our vacations, you might have thought you'd bumped into the king and queen of the black bourgeoisie. My parents were not pretenders to a lifestyle above their station. In their own little way, they saw themselves as sartorial activists, doing their part to chip away at stereotypes about black America. Thank you, Michelle. Now, you have a great experiment going here, and this is some, a kind of thing that I really like. It's where you gather lots of just raw data. Tell us about your race cards. Well, <laughs> isn't that cute? You know, when people, are, when people talk about playing the race card, it's usually seen as a negative connotation. You're calling someone's bluff because they usually dared to even mention the word race or, or tiptoe toward the concept. Well, I tried to take a little bit of the stigma out of that. Uh, this is my 24th city on a 35-city book tour. And I have been passing these out wherever I go. And we couldn't find the cards, but we still want you to participate in the experiment. And what I do is I ask people to think about the word 
race. Now, I wrote a book that's about race, but it's also about family and family secrets and, uh, and, and family legacy. But race is one of the threads that weaves through the story. And, and I find that people come to hear my story and think about theirs. And so while they're thinking, I thought, why not try to tackle this thorny topic in a unique way, in an interesting and unique way. So what I ask people to do is think about your thoughts, your views, your expectations, your worries, your triumphs, your laments, your hopes, your dreams about race as you've lived it, as you've thought about it, as you perhaps hope to see it in the future. And then condense that to one sentence. You only get one. And just because we want to make it interesting, we're going to take that down a little bit further and you're going to crunch that one sentence down to just six words. Your thoughts, six words, and you can pass them on tonight. You can send them to me at my website. It's michelle-norris. Um, if we had these, I would say you could drop these in the mail because they are actually postcards. Now, some of you are looking at me with a little bit of terror in your eyes. You're not expected to do this right away tonight. This is um, something that you get to think about. Um, you don't have to participate, but I hope you do. And, uh, and maybe even when we get to the end of the conversation tonight, we could even discuss some of your thoughts if you so choose. Maybe somebody will hand them for us and we can read them out right now. You know, Michelle, one of the quotes out of this book that just stuck with me, because it's a really powerful book, it's a, but it's a very discomforting book, too. I mean, it keeps, uh, it's not necessarily all feel good, though it leaves you feeling really good. And I'm thinking about what Julia Beaton said, that when she talked about her reaction to seeing documentaries about civil rights, that it's not entertainment, and it sure as hell ain't ancient history. And I think that's one of the powerful aspects of this book, is that you remind us that these things that happened are not ancient history. Well, and what I discovered is, uh, is that some of the things that happened were unknown to me. I mean, I, I wound up writing a different book than I set out to write. I was planning to write a book of essays about how Americans talk and think about race in the wake of the election of Barack Obama. I wanted to listen to the hidden conversation about race and write a series of essays about what I learned. I wound up listening to the hidden conversation in my family uh, and, and discovered some profound things. Suddenly the older people in my family were sharing secrets, were shedding stories that they had kept to themselves. And so I wound up sliding into an accidental memoir and then sliding into American history because my family story pulled me back into that history. And what I discovered is that my understanding of the civil rights movement has been sort of condensed into this period between the mid-1960s to the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really didn't have a clear understanding of what led up to that, the preamble to what we now understand to be the civil rights movement. And I thought I knew a lot. You know, I consider all things every day at 4 o'clock. <laughs> uh, and I, I, there was so much that I didn't know. And as I write in the book, it's as, if, it's as if Harriet Tubman had rolled up to Martin Luther King and said, here's the baton, go for the gold, and just skipped over the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Yeah. And, and that's where, that's, that was new territory to me. That was as astonishing to me as some of the things that I learned about my family.
Well, one of the things I think that's so wonderful about this book is the, the mystery at the heart of it. This is m in many ways a, very much a mystery story and it's so interesting to see you as a character engaging your investigative reporting mm -hmm. abilities into your own family history. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> I um, so. You know, when you write a family memoir, which is not something I actually recommend for everyone because it's, it's very, very difficult. You, you pull the rest of your family along, you drag them into the boat, and you go down the rapids, and they're all looking at you like, I didn't ask for this. You know, this was not my idea. I didn't buy a ticket. I didn't want to go on this ride. And ultimately, they, they were pleased that I wrote the book because we captured our history. We learned so much about our family and about America, but really about our family. I normally tell stories about other people. I stand on the sidelines and report what I see in a sort of expository way so my listeners understand what I see and saw and felt. I couldn't sit on the sidelines in the story. I had to become a part of the story. I had to get inside the story emotionally, physically. I had to go to Birmingham. I had to walk the streets. I had to go to the place uh, where my father was wounded. I had to go to small Midwestern towns. I had to be inside the story. And then I had to turn around and, and, and ask my family about things that they kept secret for years. I used the verb ask, they would probably say interrogate. Uh, but I tried to do it gently and with respect because they didn't, you know, these were stories that, that they had kept under wraps. But something, something happened this year, and I'm, I'm convinced after traveling the country that despite all the talk about us sliding into a post-racial society that we're actually thinking about race in more animated ways. And that's coming out in lots of different ways all over the country. You're seeing it, uh, it manifests itself in lots of different ways. In my family, what happened is the older people in my family went through this period of historic indigestion. Uh, <laughs> that's stories. a great way of putting well, it. Well, that, that, that's what it felt like, mm -hmm. because suddenly, you know, there, and it was always my older uncles, and it was always over food. And it was like stories just gurgled up. And they're at a period in their life, they're older men and they're very dignified and they've kept a lot of stuff to themselves, but now if they're thinking it, they're saying it. It's just coming out. But it, it's a little bit more than just disinhibition. You see, when, when I was young, you've heard the phrase, eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. we've all heard that. Sure. Eyes on the prize. You've heard the phrase, keep your eyes on the prize. This was something I heard as much as clean up your room. I mean, they, they talked about this all the time, but as a young person, the odd thing was is the prize was not something that was promised. It wasn't like something that was going to be under the Christmas tree with a bow on it. It was this idea that you were supposed to keep your eye on something that you might never touch. Because in the description, it always sounded like it was over a mountain range, through the hot sands of time, and, and you had to cross a moat of boiling oil just to get next to it. And then something happened this year, or actually it wasn't this year, two years ago, with the election of Barack Obama. Even members of my family who, who are fairly conservative in their thinking and, and, and don't much support all of his ideas felt the world shift when they picked up a newspaper 
and saw a man of color sitting at a big desk in the Oval Office who looked like one of their grandsons. And for those who did support him, enthusiastically, they felt the world rumble when they walked into a voting booth and picked up a little, two, a little tiny number two pencil and filled in a circle and voted for a black president because as young people, to, to think that they might vote for a black president would be like trying to reach up and just touch the sun. You know, just, just something that they just thought they'd never see. And when that happened, that's when they exhaled. A goal and, that keeps moving away. Yeah, but in this case, the goal they, felt close. Mm -hmm. And when they exhaled, that's when all these stories came out. You know, the title of the book is The Grace of Silence. And our first intuition is to think that this is the silence of holding something in. But I think for you, it was the silence of remaining silent to allow somebody else to hmm. speak. Wow, and I that's think, interesting. I think that was, that when you talked that's about the uncles, yeah, they were ready to speak because you were ready to listen. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, that's, I hadn't thought about that, that twist on, on the, the title. You know, people think the most important thing that I do on the radio is talk. And actually, the most important thing I do is listen. And this book was an exercise in listening to some very painful things, mm. not just from family members, but you know, I, I, my father had a, a violent incident in Birmingham, and I had to go back and uncover that. And in uncovering that, um, it involved a white police officer, so I had to go and try to find out what life was like on the other side of the color line. And I heard some astonishing things, you know, in that exercise. I also heard some astonishing things from black Americans who harbor a lot of discomfort and something um, a few steps beyond animosity mm -hmm. uh, toward white America. And my job in unpacking the story was to listen without judgment um, and listen when you wanted to say, I can't believe she just said that. You know, you couldn't, but what you had to do was just swallow and listen. And, and, and I hope that that is one of the smaller lessons in the book, in whether it's talking about family secrets and certainly when it's talking about race, is if you want to have an honest conversation about almost anything, but particularly involving race, someone is going to say something that makes you uncomfortable. Someone's going to say something maybe that makes your stomach turn a little bit, that makes you want to get up and pull away from the table. And the real courage is to stay at the table. You know, I met someone in Utah earlier this week, and she mm -hmm. sent me this great, um, at my website I have this section called Your Stories, where people can post their own stories if they want to. And she sent me this, this great um, missive, and she said, you know, I think when we talk about counseling, it applies to these discussions about race. She said, the rule is stay in the boat. The second rule is stay in the boat. The third rule is stay in the damn boat. Uh, and, and she said, I think you know, what you're talking about requires that same kind of thinking, that even if you're going down the rapids and you think you want to get out of the boat, you need to stay in the boat. You need to stay at the table. And that's what I tried, tried to do, and I don't think I would have gotten as far as I did in unpacking the story and letting people unburden themselves if I wasn't willing to, to just sit quietly and let them tell their story. And at that point, the questions became more like prompts. You know, it was a, um, once they slid to that point where they really wanted to tell their story, 
as I think most people do, mm -hmm. it was just a, an exercise in courage to just stay there at the table. You know, this book does have lots of, I think, mind-boggling moments of, of recent history where you, you tell us things that have happened that, um, for example, the, 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 white, the scene of white flight in, in the beginning, I, I, the note, that, the sticky note that I put on those pages uh, had words that I could not say on the radio. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. And, and there were so many more. This book really is a, a book that... <coughs> It makes us uncomfortable with ourselves. And what you do is you get inside this kind of double helix of loathing of others and self-loathing. It's a very complicated, twisty kind of um, arrangement that you manage to get to the, at the heart of this book. Well, you know, the story of integration is, um, is kind of a bumpy one. <laughs> and what I realized is that you know, we think back on it now in historic terms, usually in February in Black History Month, and usually through documentary or through books. But integration happened classroom by classroom, workroom by workroom, neighborhood by neighborhood. And what I'm now discovering through readers who are now telling their stories is this kind of thing happened all over the place. My family was not unique. Uh, I, I hear from people all the time from both sides. Mm, that's what's I hear so interesting. also from people whose parents packed up and moved very quickly. Um, in really? some cases because Italians moved in, <laughs> not just because of blacks. Mm -hmm. And wondering, wait a minute, I hear this on Sunday morning or Saturday night at service, and then why are we moving because someone of a darker hue or of a different faith moved in. I mean, and this is sort of the story of this tapestry of America, this sort of stutter of steps toward integration, toward women's rights, toward gay marriage, toward, you know, it really made me think about history in a really granular way and how much of that we don't tell, you know, how much of it we keep to ourselves. I never knew that my family had, I, I grew up in this integrated community on the south side of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. My father's from Birmingham, so I would go to Birmingham in the winters, or in the summers, excuse me, because that would really be unusual. Um, to, uh, I spent winters in, it would make sense actually to go to Birmingham in the winter, <laughs> but I spent the year in Minnesota and, go, and I would go to Birmingham in the summers uh, to be with my grandparents. And Birmingham, even when I was young, even though the Jim Crow laws had been erased, um, because of custom and habit and all kinds of reasons, Birmingham was still very much a segregated, bifurcated community. I grew up in this little rainbow community in Minneapolis, and I just thought that's the way it was. I thought the air was better in Minnesota. What I didn't realize is my neighborhood was integrated because my parents integrated it. <laughs> they never talked about it. Mm -hmm. You know, they, that was part of the, the silence, that they didn't want us to understand the reception that they received, even from some of my friends friends' parents, they just stopped talking about that. Well, I have to ask, I'm going to ask one last question before we take this over to the discussion. And I think the most fascinating, one of the many fascinating parts of this book was the uh, reception of the uh, black World War II veterans. That part of history just is so powerfully rendered in the book, and it's something that I've never heard of before, and it seems like it should be right up there 
uh, with Martin Luther King and the rest of it. You know, and I've been thinking that we just passed Veterans Day, so this has been very much on my mind this mm. week. For those who, who haven't read the book, one of the things that I discovered is that my, my father, my father was a postal worker. Both my parents were postal workers. And they're very um, quiet people, but very proud. My father was a very gentle man. He was a gentleman and a gentleman, very kind, um, very quiet, um, but, you know, steely in his own way, but very, very, very mild-mannered man. And what I learned from one of my uncles in their period of disinhibition was that he had been shot as a very young man by a police officer when he had returned from World War II. And this is, this is a complete surprise to me because my dad never talked about it, never told me, mm. never told my sisters. He hadn't told my mother. That's just so amazing. In all the intimacies of marriage, this never came up. I mean, he had you know, a mark on his leg, but it was a, explained as a childhood injury. Uh, he wasn't a child when this happened. He was a young man, but he was not a child. He had just returned from his military service. And a police officer tried to stop him when he was entering a building. And he stood up to that police officer. And this is 1946, February of 1946. So for a black man to stand up to a white police officer in, in Birmingham, Alabama in 1946 was to invite a special kind of trouble. And that's what happened. A scuffle ensued, the policeman's gun went off, and my father was wounded when the bullet grazed the side of his leg. Mm. I got just the elemental information from an uncle. And then I had to go and piece the story together to talk to relatives who didn't want to talk to me. And it kept pulling me back into this history. And what I wound up discovering is that my father was part of a cohort of men whose stories are really not told in American history. They no, were, and it's, so, it's such a fascinating story, too. They were, they were men who had gone to war, black men. There were women also who had served as wax or waves, but there were large numbers of, of African-American veterans. At that time, they would have called themselves Negro veterans. And they had come back to the States, and they were men who were utterly transformed by the experience. They had worn the uniform, uh, they had participated in strict codes of segregation. In the Army, um, they were allowed into combat, but in limited roles. In the Navy, they were not allowed into combat. combat. When my father enlisted in 1943, you either worked as a steward or a cook. And if you could, if you could play music, you played in the band. They had a jazz band at Great Lakes. Um, that included people like Clark Terry, mm. for instance, who was there in 1943 when my father was. Uh, but that experience, even though they wielded, in my father's case, nothing more than sink hoses or spatulas. The experience of wearing the uniform, of participating in the fight for human rights overseas, transformed them. And when they came back, they had different expectations. They participated in the fight for democracy overseas, and they came back with this crazy notion that they might get a taste of it back home. And their, their demands were relatively simple. This is before the era of power to the people marches and big afros. They wanted jobs. They wanted respect. They wanted to vote. And when my father came back from Birmingham, the buildings in the black business district were buzzing at night, the office buildings on the upper floors, either with social events, but also with classes, evening classes held for veterans to learn about the Constitution. 
because in order to vote, they would be asked a series of questions to prove that they could, that they understood and could interpret any part of the Constitution that the registrar would point to. This is because Birmingham had passed something called the Boswell Amendment in response to a Supreme Court case called Smith v. Allwright, which outlawed white-only primaries. And, and because the black population was so large in southern states that if black people could vote in large numbers, it would upend the power structure. So they came up with something called the Boswell Amendment, which would try to limit their participating in the voting, participation in the voting process. My father was going into one of these buildings that night. Now, I don't know exactly if he was going to a social event or if he was going to one of these classes, but I do know that he carried a pocket copy of the Constitution in his back pocket all of his life. And as a young person, I used to tease him about it. It's so fascinating. And, you know, shame, shame on me. But the, the, the piece of this that I hope that people take and, and think about, again, because it goes to history, and it's not just to point to the awful things that happened to these men, but but something that is, it, it explains the title Grace in the book. You see, my father was, was wounded. And even though he was wounded, he was lucky. He was lucky because it could have been worse. He was lucky because it happened in February of 1946. And in the first six weeks of February, excuse me, in the first six weeks of 1946, a half a dozen black veterans were reportedly killed by police officers in and around Birmingham for things like moving signs on a bus that said colored only. That was just Birmingham. The thing that really blew my mind in doing this research when I started to look at what was going on all over the country is that throughout the year in 1946, Violence was visited upon these veterans, and I mean, it was unbelievable the kind of violence they faced across the country, not just in the South, across the country, they were beaten, burned, maimed, killed, castrated, blowtorched. It was the blinding of a veteran named Isaac Woodard that so troubled Harry Truman that he appointed the Commission on Civil Rights that led to the full integration of the armed services. Isaac Woodard was pulled off a bus three hours after he was honorably discharged from Fort Gordon in Georgia. He had said something to the bus driver as he was on his way to North Carolina that angered the bus driver. So the bus driver called ahead and made sure that a South Carolina police officer, actually two, were waiting for him when he pulled into the town of Batesburg. Mm -hmm. He was pulled off a bus, pulled into an alley, beaten uh, repeatedly with a blackjack, it's a, a billy club that has lead pellets in it, beaten about the eyes. He was later arrested, and when he woke up the next morning, still wearing his uniform, he couldn't see. His eyes were essentially pulverized. We know that because of the, the medical records from the examination. Harry Truman was so troubled by this, he wrote letters. We now know this. It's, he wrote letters to his friends. He appointed this commission, a 15-member commission, gave them offices in the White House because he wanted to make sure that they were not influenced by the outside society and, uh, and asked them to look at the racial situation in the country. How many of you have ever heard of Isaac Woodard? That's more than most. I've been to 24 cities and most crowds have maybe one hand. His name is lost to history, as are the men who were blowtorched in Minden, Louisiana, or beaten it just outside the airport in Atlanta, usually for trying to vote. And the reason their stories are lost to history is because it's inconvenient to talk about them, 
So that's one explanation. But the other is that the men and the women and the families that went through this stopped talking about it. They moved forward. They left that period and those stories behind as if it were a pair of shoes that no longer fit, that pinched their feet. And so they said, I'm not going to wear them anymore. And they moved forward and they said, I'm going to create a narrative for my life that is about something different. I am going to try to show America what I can be by leading a life of utter rectitude. And I'm going to, in doing that, try to show America what it can be. And that's why I use the title Grace. You know, people ask me when I did this research, aren't you angry about what happened to your father? Aren't you angry on behalf of all these men? And I take a cue from the way that they handled this. It would have been so easy for them to be completely unproductive members of society, to be full of rage and to feed their children, my generation, a steady diet of that rage. Mm -hmm. And to a person, the veterans I talked to, I never had a chance to talk to my father about it because he died in 1988, but I talked to many other veterans in working on this story. And to a person, they didn't talk about it. They didn't tell their wives, they didn't tell their lovers, they didn't tell their kids. They didn't talk about it at church. They, when they get together with their friends to play bid whist, they didn't talk about it then. They just left it behind. And that is an incredibly graceful act. Not just because they, they, they stopped talking about it for self-preservation, but with regard to the next generation, my generation, the fact that my father kept this to himself because he didn't want my view of the world to be pinched is, is just, is, is such a beautiful thing. You know, if you want your children to soar, you don't put boulders in their pocket when they're heading out the door. Mm -hmm. and, and he decided to keep that to himself in many ways for me, for my sisters, because he wanted something better for us. But he kept every little I voted sticker, oh, yeah, and you found that, and that's such a sweet scene. And he kept his medals, but he kept them, you know, hidden, hidden away. I mean, he kept his postal medals, mm. his post office pins for his service. You know, that he was more proud of that. His, he had a complicated relationship mm. with the military, but he voted early. You know, he was first in line, and um, he took that very, very, very seriously. And and you know, when I think of him, when I think of that Constitution, I think of he would read it on the bus. I'm told a neighbor said he would sit and read that sometimes on the bus and you know it's um, it's almost like um, Langston Hughes I too sing America it's so beautiful now Michelle let's have Kat come up and facilitate a discussion in this community so at this point we would like to open up to questions from the audience and the community I know it's always very difficult to be the first person we have a couple brave souls right back here Should have taken mm -hmm. place in this country a long time ago. 
I, I think it probably did, um, because they didn't talk about I mean, there, there were many surprises in working on this book and, and little epiphanies for me. And one of them was that uh, when we talk about the discomfort surrounding the discussion of race, it usually is ascribed to white America. Uh, black Americans talk about race in private spaces. If you go to the beauty shop, if you, if you only heard um, what, you know, what, kinds of, what, what people would say, but, or what people do say, but in terms of a, a larger discourse, black Americans are as silent as white Americans on that. It's, it's as if we're talking past each other to the, to the degree that we're talking at all. And by not forcing that discussion or not participating in that discussion, I think perhaps it helped delay that conversation, but I'm not certain that that isn't on the whole an entirely terrible thing. Uh, because there are opportunities in this moment that I don't think existed before. You know, we live in a much more multiracial society. We're able to talk to each other in a way that was not possible in my parents' generation. Um, my children live a different life racially than I lead. Uh, and not just in my childhood, I mean, right now. They're, they're, they just, there's an ease and a comfort that, that is, a, a, you know, a part of that. And my parents didn't feel like they were emboldened to talk about this. It was, it was, there was a certain danger associated with it. And they also felt the need to assimilate in a different way than I did and than I think my kids do. I mean, part of it was to, to when I say the Coca-Cola generation, to match that, I mean, one of the, some of the biggest fights I used to have with my parents when I was young was about my Afro. Um, you know, once, you know, Af I actually had an Afro that was forced on me. When you read the book, you'll understand this. But then I said, if I'm gonna wear an afro, mine's gonna be really big. And it was so big that it went out of the perimeter of my high school photo. I mean, the picture ended and my afro just kept going and going and going. But you know, and, and if, you're, if you're a certain age, you remember in the late 70s, coveralls, like farmers, you know, were, were really popular. My parents were just fatutzed about this. You're going out of the house in farmers? What? Yes, they said yeah, that's what sharecroppers were. I mean, you would never ever, and in fact, sharecroppers, when they went downtown, didn't wear sharecropper clothes. I mean, my grandfather worked in the mills and the mines, and when he went downtown, he was dressed in his Sunday go to meeting clothes. So this was just something that they didn't, you know, that they didn't, it was all so much about assimilation and about fitting in and being respected that that, I think, jaundiced the conversation. It made it very difficult. For that. You yeah. said they aspired to be ordinary. I love yeah, that. Yeah, that was that was the, the goal was to be. And in fact, I grew up thinking that I would. That's you know that's again one of the lessons. I grew up thinking I was so ordinary that we were almost kind of dull, not realizing that they were sitting on these extraordinary secrets. And mm -hmm. I'm not alone in that. I think many of you probably are sitting on incredible stories in your own families, and you probably just don't know it because people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. so in the back. I went to school in East Tennessee. And the first time I walked into a room and realized what it felt like to be a minority was I was totally 
because there was this sense of, for the first time in my life, of being other. Mm-hmm. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I realized that that it's the fear of humanity mm-hmm. that, that somehow rather that I'm not quite human or that somebody else isn't quite human that was keeping me stuck at that, at that point. But it was... Um, to think that 10 years from, from the father's incident to things hadn't changed that much in, in that part of the world. You know, that we were, you know, we were very much uh, a, a party to seeing, you know, act, when we stepped off campus, you know, very, very active hate. Um, and and, and people who lived through that are still, it's I, not I, ancient history. Yeah, and, And it wasn't until they did the 50th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education, she wrote something and she said, I thought it was just this student that the college had done such a great job um, hmm. of supporting her. Um, so that there were some real, uh, some real good threads in, in the middle of that. And it left me with, with a profound sense that there is nothing that isn't possible in terms of changing human hearts and human Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you could tell me what post-racial means to you. And I'm also wondering for your book if you have different hopes for different populations of people, for instance, based on age. Mm-hmm. I don't know what post-racial means. I really don't. I, 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 it's a term that is very interesting to me. Um, it was nowhere and then it was everywhere. And I'm suspicious about that. Uh, that's not the, I mean, if you look at the way words are introduced into society, that doesn't happen. I'm not suggesting that someone was sort of salting the idea through the media, but something happened. I mean, it just, it was nowhere, I've studied this. I mean, I really, I can tell you the month that it suddenly started to appear everywhere. And before that, it was used by Derek Bell once, and it was in an article in Time magazine. I actually talked to the reporter who wrote that article. Uh, this is when I was working on the other book, The Essays About Race. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had mm-hmm. really lo- I had looked into this, so I can actually tell you when it, so I don't know what it means. I just know that it was like kudzu, you know, once <laughs> it took off. It just sort of grew. Um, I, can, I can tell you how it's interpreted, that it's moving to some place where race, it's like, it seems like it's like taking the express elevator, you know, past all the difficult stuff up to the top floor where the view is good and the living is easy. And uh, I, I just don't understand it. You know, I'm, I'm really honest. And I kind of don't even understand what it means. I mean, to be post-racial means to take race out of things. Race is part of what makes this country interesting, I think. And it means to render everything in shades of gray and take all the color out, um, including the white. 
And why would you do that? I mean, there's a reason we don't watch black and white television anymore, because color is just, you know, sort of more interesting. To see things in bright, vivid colors, and it's part of, you know, it, it is such a part of this history, I don't know why we would want to take it out. Um, so I don't really understand what, what the term means. As for my hopes in uh, what people do with the book, is I called the book The Grace of Silence, mm-hmm. but I hope that people, A, I hope people read it. I hope a lot of people read it. Um, but I, I hope that when they do, they talk. I hope that they're not silent after reading it. I hope that it makes you curious. About your own family. Exactly. That's exactly. You, the first thing you want to do after reading this book is start interrogating or questioning <laughs> your parents. Yeah. Mom, what, what yeah. was up? Tell me, tell me something about yourself. I mean, in my case, I, cal- I inherited this complicated racial legacy mm. that I didn't know about. And it's very painful, but it's mine. And I can now tell my children that, you know, these are your people. It doesn't mean that you get special treatment because bad things happen to us. Don't think you get anything special just because bad things have happened in the past. That's not the deal. But what you do is you look back and you see you can get through anything because they did. You can walk up the rough side of a mountain because they did, and you have it easier. I'm sounding like my mother right now. Um, you know, that you were, that bad things might happen to you. In fact, bad things will happen to you. Now I'm really sounding like my mother. But, but it won't define you. And I hope that that's the message that they take from this. In my case, I inherited a complicated racial legacy because I didn't know the people who raised me as well as I thought I did. But how many of you know the people who raised you? And how many of you have children who really know you? as well as they could. I mean, whether you lived through the Holocaust or the Dust Bowl or the Depression, whether you remember polio, whether you had somebody in your family who had cancer or got divorced at a time when people really didn't talk about that, chances are you probably don't know the whole story. And it's not because parents are dishonest. It's, it's more that they want, you want your children to see the best of you so you give them the best parts of the story and sometimes you leave some some things out. Sometimes it's because of pain, sometimes it's just sort of ease in telling the story. But again, it's those boulders. You don't want to weigh your kids down with tales of woe or with complication. I land in a slightly different place though. Mm -hmm. And a woman that I met on book tour in Baltimore actually gave me the best way of framing this. You know, it's, you don't want to put boulders in your child's pocket but it's okay to put pebbles in there, or maybe pearls, because you want them, yes, you want them to be grounded. Mm -hmm. You want them to understand where they came from. And you know, we have an opportunity to do this in just a little over a week. You, if you listen to public radio, you know about StoryCorps on Fridays, this wonderful gift of oral history that Dave Isay has, has given us. It's so interesting. And the, you know, when I, I put on my makeup on Friday late in the morning because he gets me so often with those stories. But he's promoting something called the National Day of Listening. It's the day after Thanksgiving. It's a national holiday that he's created and that he promotes and that um, he's actually asked me to serve as an ambassador this year for the National Day of Listening because it dovetails so nicely with the book. But what he's asking people to do is to take part of that day after Thanksgiving when you're already with loved ones and talk to them. Try to capture some part of your family history. Let the kids interview the older folks or just let two people sit in a room and talk to each other and if possible, record it. Because you know it doesn't require the investment of, 
a lot of money or complicated equipment. If you have an iPhone, you can record in quality. I mean, most cell phones record. You can record on your computer. You can get pretty inexpensive um, recording equipment. You can use a flip and and record it and then transfer it and save it. You know, my my children know Grandpa Belvin because of this book. Mm. They know more about him than they ever would have if my uncles hadn't started just spouting off and telling me stories and if I hadn't started digging. But even with all they know, they will never hear my father's voice mm. because I never recorded it. I work in radio. I swim in audio. And, and that stings in a special way for me because I should have taken the time mm. to record his voice. There's nothing like listening, <clears throat> li listening to someone tell their own story in their own voice. And on the day after Thanksgiving when you feel you might need to go to the mall, let me tell you that if you take the time to do this, it will be more valuable than anything you will ever find in a retail establishment. So interesting. Question right here. I watched you on Meet the Press mm -hmm. maybe about a week or two ago. I was so enthralled to see one of our NPR people on Meet the Press. I love that. It, it's, it's so powerful. What comes to me when you talk is that a lot of white Americans do not realize that racial inequality not only has lasted up until now, but it was very rampant up through the 1950s. And many people in the South that were of black heritage did not understand that they were not slaves anymore because they were so illiterate that they were told by white establishment that they still had to adhere to customs, being in a slave mode. Mm -hmm. So many people did not come out of racial inequality until the late 1940s and until Brown versus the Board of Education really came about. And that was a huge defining change in the United States. What I find, I grew up a, a single mother raised myself and three brothers. I don't believe in, in any instance we ever had an ounce of racial prejudice given to us by our mother. And so when I grew up, I had no idea what prejudice was. I didn't see a person of, of, of African-American connotation until I was like 16, and I thought that was just the coolest thing. Um, but I find that we on the left coast, so to speak, are, are very open-minded, especially here in Santa Cruz. We're very liberal. However, it's hard for us to rectify that in the Deep South, it's so different. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't limit it to the Deep South. You know, um, you know, we, we have a lot of, um, you know, we're, when it comes to race, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's very, very complicated. And when you talk about uh, you know, inequality, uh, it's not necessarily something that's in the past. I mean, if you look at the prison population, if you look at indices of achievement, 
whether it's education or, or you know, representation in uh, law firms and medical schools. I mean, one one way to look at this that is that is I think instructive, and this is something that that uh, some very smart passed on to me, is look at housing values. When you look at material wealth that's been passed on. And if you look at the starting point, you know, like if, if, if you, you buy a starter home and what that does, well, because of redlining or because of um, financial decisions that are made in terms of neighborhoods and values placed on homes, you know, the wealth that families can pass on to their children, um, you know, when they sell that home or when they, the children inherit that home is very different and often very different because of, of race, you know, and because of redlining and things like this. I mean, one of the complicating things about race in America right now and today is that when we talk about race, it is so often still seen as a binary construct. Um, and you know, the media is on the, the East Coast, and, and since the East Coast is not, you don't, you know, it's not as multi-hued or as multi-ethnic as, say, the, the West Coast. I think you called it the Left Coast. Well, I didn't as, um, But you know, that's one of the things that when you talk about race, in, in, uh, in America, it's still this black-white issue. And that's one of the things that, you know, I mean, I, I can only control this little patch, uh, you know, that I control on the radio. And one of the things that I'm trying to do, one of the lessons I certainly take from this book, is that when we talk about race, we've got to expand that notion. We've got to expand what that, you know, what that means. And that's part of what the race card. We have someone here who's dying to say something. I didn't, I didn't, well, wait, I didn't finish, <laughs> though. Um, what I wanted to say was that, yes, in the Deep South, I personally feel that, that there, there is this difference between us here in Santa Cruz, for instance, but it's all over the United States. My concern is that I, I, I was very um, deflated when affirmative action went out the window. And to me, a affirmative action was taken away by the Republican Party. And I would like to find out from you how you feel about affirmative action having been depressed by political means to take away from situations where people could have lifted themselves. You know, affirmative action is, I'm, I'm, I will say, I don't talk about what I, what I think generally just as a journalist. Even when I go on Meet the Press, I talk about what I know as opposed to what I think, and that sets me apart from some of, some other people who call themselves pundits, but as a host, that, that I feel is my role. Uh, affirmative action is very complicated politically because it's not just the right. Um, you know, the, the sitting president has a very nuanced and somewhat complicated view of affirmative action. Um, and I, you have to be careful to assume that only people that are on the far right uh, have problems with affirmative action. Um, Barack Obama will talk about his daughters. And, you know, and it's something he wrestles with. Do, do Sasha and Malia deserve affirmative action if they were to attend Columbia University as he did, given their status or their wealth? You know, is that something that should be based just on, on skin color? Um, and on the other hand, if you look at what's happened in the wake of affirmative action, if you look at what's happened in Berkeley at Bolt Hall, or at the University of Michigan, where I was just about a month ago, um, the number of African American and Latino students in the law school there has dropped precipitously. Uh, it is it has dropped by almost 70%. And so, you know, these are, 
it, it, it's, it's more than just easy politics. It's more than sloganeering. It's more than, than wedge issues. And this is something if, if, if the goal, if, if diversity is indeed a goal that is worthy, um, how you get there is, is ever more complicated. Well, one of the lessons of this book is nuance. Yeah, I think that's which is not always valued in American life. No, you know? <laughs> it's important. Yeah, yeah. We as people like to paint in sort of big, bold strokes, and we're sometimes. No, we need to mix our color, mix, mm-hmm. mix, water down, yeah. make it subtle. So we've got a couple hands back here for a while. I think we have time for about one more question. We want to make sure everyone has time to get their books signed. I think back here in the back in the teal shirt. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I want to ask a question that is um, maybe a bit more personal, but I, I think it underscores um, the discussion we've been having about um, how um, racial inequality is an ongoing, a living thing that is something we live with every day. Um, when I was in college, I lived with um, a variety of races, and just to underscore that um, you know the race is not just the color of your skin, it goes deeper than that. Um, for the most part, as a black person, when you open your mouth, I know what race you are. Yeah. Um, so I had a roommate who was a college student, and he, he would talk to me, and I think about eight months into our uh, into the year, he I discovered that he was an African-American, and I said, you know, I really never <coughs> noticed it. He said, you know, I take that as a compliment. I worked really hard not to have an accent so that you couldn't tell by, so that when I was on the phone, you wouldn't necessarily know that I was black. And I noticed when you talk that um, you don't have the typical accent that I would associate with African-American. And I'm wondering if that's something, well, first of all, I don't, I don't want to be rude if, if I'm insulting you because I don't, that's not my intent. I'm wondering if it's something you worked out or if it's something that it came to you because you lived in an integrated community and it wasn't an issue. Can I ask that question? That is a result of having to succeed in, in a, as a minority in a community and having to be a community. Right, I understand, but I, I mean. Oh, you know, it, 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 is, it is a little bit of both. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota and I lived, uh, spent a lot of my time in Birmingham, Alabama. And so if I want to, I can be as country as a sugar sandwich. (laughs) And I can speak in such a way on the radio that you might not know. Now, part of that is because I grew up in two different communities, but part of that, and I can't see you, suddenly you disappeared and I can't see you anymore. But part of that is, what's your name? Fred. And what's your name? Fred. Fred. Part of that speaks to what Fred is saying. That, you know, I, I had parents, I had a grandmother in particular, and when you buy the book, you'll read about her. <laughs> uh, and she would talk to us about, uh, she was just honest about diction all the time. And if you were talking about how you were fixing to go somewhere, or you were thinking about doing something, she'd say, did you leave the G outside the door? <laughs> you you want to go get him and invite him in and attach him, you know, to the word. Uh, you know, so part of that is, is you know, I, I'm, I'm going to use an example. Okay, I think that sometimes if we can pull stories right out of the news, it might, it might illustrate the point. There was a certain uh, Senate Majority Leader who got in a little bit of trouble. We're talking about a sitting president who um, was elected because he didn't speak in Negro dialect. Okay. 
And people, and this is an example of the race card. People thought that, oh my goodness, he dared to talk about race and he called him a Negro. Well, you know, my birth certificate says Negro. I mean, it may have been clumsy language, but, uh, and the point that he, this is what I really want to get to, that, that he was elected because he didn't speak in traditional Negro dialect. That, to me, was one of those Rorschach moments, you know, and how people responded to that. Because, okay, if we want to have a really honest conversation about this, was that one of the reasons, that, really, was that one of the reasons that he was elected? Because he could speak, you know, and, and he, like George Bush, when he goes to certain places, drops his G's, you know, and gets a little bit more comfortable. He can go to church if he needs to, as most politicians do. But that, part of that is the, um, is the cloak that you wear uh, in order to succeed in America. That is, that is part of the, the, you know, the complication of race. Now that's not unique to being black though, because if you talk to people who are from the South, they will talk about how they sometimes have to change their language a little bit, you know, round out the corners a little bit, the, the vowels are a little less slurry, a little less loose um, in order for them to succeed. As a broadcaster, you know, how many people do you hear on the air who sound like they, they sprang straight from Mississippi? Um, so that's, you know, those are, those are part, of, part of cultural, cultural standards. But, you know, in my case, I, uh, you hear a lot of different things on the air. I mean, sometimes people will claim that they can hear the southern, uh, a little bit of southern dialect. If you, are there any Minnesotans here? <laughs> do you hear the Minnesota O's sometime? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I will tell you one quick funny story about Minnesota. My, my husband um, is Broderick Johnson, and when I carried him home, the whole family was there because they thought, okay, we got to meet him because she's been aggressively single for so long. We have to meet, <laughs> meet this guy that she's going to marry. And it's my big Minnesota family, and, you know, we're all eating a lot of casseroles because that's what we do in Minnesota. There's like a table full of covered dishes. <laughs> And, um, and everyone's talking about everything is plenty good. Oh, this is so good. Oh, delicious. That's the potatoes. And my husband pulls me in the kitchen and he says, even the black people talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happens in Minnesota. <laughs> I think we're going to... Uh... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'd just like to have a round of applause for me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.